Good to see this house so full this Sunday morning. It's great to see you all. And uh, I'm excited to dive into week two. We're in week two now of our winter teaching series called Unshakable, Faith That Stands Through the Unthinkable. I love that vision to have a faith that stands no matter what, stands through all sorts of circumstances. And we're going to be looking at the book of Job from the Old Testament over the next several weeks. We started off last week, Pastor Tom gave us an introduction to Job. He introduced us to Job and what a good man he was, what a good life he had at the beginning of the book and gave us some really helpful background information on the book of Job and how to read it in the context of the Bible. So if you, if you weren't here, I'd really encourage you to listen to the podcast. Really helpful background information. And I really found myself wishing that Pastor Tom was around the first time that I read the book of Job. Because I didn't have a clue. The first time I came across Job was actually my senior year of high school in English class. And Job was assigned for us to read as just a great work of literature. And I was not a believer at the time, and no one in my class was, and, and it just went totally over my head. I thought, this book is just strange, and, and I don't get it. It doesn't really make me want to read the Bible much more. And, and I wondered, um, you know, what did other people take away from it? So actually, last night was my 20-year high school reunion, and I thought, what a... F- hmm? Where are you? Oh. <laughs> I thought, what a fun conversation starter. I'll find people from the English class and be like, hey, do you remember Job? What, what do you remember from that time? So I asked a few people, and all I got was, I don't know. I don't remember anything. I, I, it was weird. I, no, it just went over all of our heads. Because it's a difficult book to get your mind around. But I find it um, understandable that, that as 18-year-olds, without any guidance, we, we didn't really get it. But I also find it sad that... That that's the takeaway because over the course of my time as a believer, walking with Jesus over a number of years, this has become one of my favorite books of the Bible in all honesty. I think it's deep and profound and a great gift to us. And I want that for my friends still. I want that for all of us here. Um, So we're going to open up now back to Job chapter 1 where we left off last week. And this is one of those passages that I think... Uh, encapsulates my relationship with the book of Job. At first glance, I thought, what on earth? And over time, I think this is one of the most profound passages in the whole Bible. So here we go. We're going to begin in verse 6 of Job chapter 1. We've met Job, and now we're going to kind of peel back the curtain a little bit uh, behind the scenes to see what's going on. It says, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of God. So... At first glance, 
what in the world is going on here? Is this what really happens to God and Satan have conversations like this? It's like they're making a bet in, in Vegas or something, you know, and, and Joe, God's got his money on Job, and, and, and Satan's like, no, my money's on Job cursing you to your face. It's, it's like a wager or something like that. Is this, is this kind of how, how it goes, how it works? Um, this is where I think some of the background information from last week is, is very helpful in understanding how to, how to read this text. So Pastor Tom explained to us there are a number of different types of literature in the Old Testament. There's historical narrative. There is wisdom literature and poetry. There are prophetical writings. There's prayers. There's a lot of different genres, actually, through which God uses to communicate truth about himself, about us, and about the world, using all the different forms of, of literature that were available in that day. And, and so Job falls actually traditionally in the wisdom literature of the Bible uh, and, and is kind of considered sort of artistic, actually, an artistic telling of a story. So Job the man actually was a real man who, who lived. That's attested to elsewhere in the Bible. But Job the book was written about a thousand years after Job the man lived. So the book was written around 700 B.C. to the people of Israel. Job was a man who lived about a 1,000 years before that. So this is not like an eyewitness account of someone who was there, kind of marking everything down that happened. But it's based roughly on the events of a man's life in order to communicate truth about God to a people in a particular time and to us. Uh, Pastor Tom compared it sort of like the musical Hamilton, which is all the rage right now. It's based on a real person who lived, Alexander Hamilton, lived 200 years ago, long time ago, and now there's this artistic expression that kind of captures some of the events of his life and is used to communicate some things to a modern audience. It's sort of like Job the Musical, if you think of it that way, except this this musical, this artistic telling is God-inspired and God-breathed. And... I believe, communicate some profound truths about God, about Satan, and about the life of faith for us. So, did they really make a wager like this and have this kind of conversation? I'll just say, I'm not going to spend my time this morning trying to convince you that, all these, that that's what happened. But I am going to highlight for you the profound questions that get raised in this passage and the truths about God, about Satan, about faith that we all have to wrestle with. And God is absolutely communicating some things to us through this telling. So, let's begin with a few thoughts on Satan. Fun thought. But um, he's here, makes an appearance, he's a prominent, prominent role in this story. And so, we're going to learn a few things. Now, this is not going to be like a comprehensive teaching on Satan this morning. That's not the primary purpose. And if I was going to do that, I probably wouldn't use this as my, my primary passage. But there are some things we see about Satan in this passage that are absolutely true about him and that are attested to elsewhere throughout the Bible. So one is that Satan is a real adversary of God and his people. Satan is a real adversary of God and his people. So he, he is real, just like Job is based on a real man, Job. This Satan, like Satan is, is real, exists, and is an adversary of God and his people. We see an adversarial relationship here between the Lord and Satan and between Satan and Job. It's adversarial. Satan does not have Job's best interest in mind. He's... A, he's He's adversarial, and that, that is a real thing. And elsewhere in Scripture, it attests to the fact that there are, there's a real Satan, there are real spiritual forces at work in opposition to God, 
to God's people and to God's purposes in the world. That's a real thing. And so it, it's wise for Christians to be aware of that. We should be aware of that and not pretend that's not true, not wish it away, and, and not try to be kind of blindly oblivious to the reality of Satan in the world and, and of evil spiritual forces. I want to show you scripture on the screen, which is from Ephesians chapter 6 in the New Testament, which says, you put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is a call to be alert and aware and to stand our ground. It's important to the Christian life to not go blissfully unaware of spiritual realities, but to actually be aware, to take them seriously so that we can stand our ground and and not be overcome by them. So Satan is a real adversary of God and his people, and so we need to be aware of that. But that being said, the second thing we see about Satan in this passage is that Satan is not on equal footing with God. It's not a, a con- there's an adversarial relationship here, but it's not a conflict between two equal and opposite powers. God is clearly superior and supreme over Satan. God is the supreme authority. We see here that Satan really can't do anything here without God's permission. God tells him, this is what you can do, and this is what you can't do. And, and that defines things. So God is, is of superior and supreme authority over Satan. They're not on equal footing. So it's important to know that uh, because all throughout Scripture, this adversarial relationship between Satan and God and Satan and God's people, it's attested to, but we've got to know it's not like a, a battle among equals. And it's not even like a game in which God is heavily favored, like the Patriots were really heavily favored last night. And while they won, there were some moments along the way, you know, it didn't, it didn't look so good. Momentum was with the Texans, and I was genuinely nervous because even though they were favored, like, they could have lost. That's not the case here with God and Satan. This is not, there's no odds. God's not just the favorite and Satan the underdog. Like, it, it's, oh, it's decided, okay? And ultimately, there we go. It's decided. We can read about it in the book of Revelation. The end is already in view. It's determined, okay? So even though there are times, and there are times, when it looks like momentum is on Satan's side, even though there are times when it may look like he's winning or when he gets in a good shot or two, the outcome is never in doubt. The outcome is never in doubt. And so to the first point, we need to be aware of Satan, but to the second point, we do not need to be afraid of Satan. And actually, turn to someone next to you and tell them, you do not need to be afraid of him. Yeah. And uh, I will note that I think this service said that with a little bit more clout than the 9 o'clock service did. So that's, that's great. That's great. We don't have to be afraid. Even in the, in the midst of the battle, the outcome is surely in God's hands. They're not equals. God wins. Satan loses. Third truth we see about Satan in this passage is that Satan is an accuser. He's an accuser. It's primarily what he does in this passage, and it's primarily what he, what he does. He, he accuses. In Revelation 12, 6, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. 
or the accuser of God's people, accusing the people of God, trying to get them to believe lies and to doubt the truth about what God says about who we are. And Satan has always been about trying to accuse God as well, call his character into question. It goes all the way back to the garden in Genesis where the serpent says things like, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in this garden? Oh, surely you will not die. God just doesn't want you to know what he knows. He's holding out on you. And, and that sows seeds of doubt. It's calling God's character and his goodness and his purposes into question. And, and, and when the woman and the man start to have that trust broken, everything kind of falls apart from there. And that's true of our Christian spiritual life. If that trust is broken, if we can't trust God's character and we can't trust God's goodness and his good purposes towards us, things start to fall apart. And if we're not sure we can trust God, it's hard to really obey God. It's hard to really follow God and take him up on his word. It's hard to give our hearts and our devotion to God with with full measure without holding back. And if we don't believe what he says about us and who we are, it's very hard to live as the free and the forgiven people that he says that we are. So these accusations, and sometimes they're subtle, sometimes they're sly, but they are nasty. And Satan is an accuser. He accuses in this passage, and it is nasty. So we're going to look now at the accusations that Satan puts forth in this passage here. And it's kind of a double whammy. It's a double accusation. We're going to see Satan accuse Job and accuse God. Accuse Job and accuse God. In verse 8, the Lord says, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And fears God here doesn't mean that Job's like afraid of God or scared. It's more honor and reverence. Job honors God. Job reveres God. Job thinks God is awesome in the full sense of the word. That's who Job is. And God says that. And Satan doesn't dispute that. Kind of like, I'll give you that. Yeah, Job is blameless. Job is upright. Job does, does fear God, but he calls into question, why, though? Why does Job fear God? Does Job fear God for nothing? I mean, look, yeah, he shuns evil, but, but well, look, what do you think the motive is? I mean, look, you've given him everything. His life is fine and dandy. He's got wealth. He's got his health. He's got a great big family. He's got Lots of prestige and honor, all sorts of safety and security. He's, I mean, he's doing great. So, of course, he honors you. But why? I mean, who wouldn't love a God who just gives you all the stuff, just gives you everything that you want? But you take that stuff away, and he'll curse you to your face. Mm. That, that is an accusation against Job and against God. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever seen on TV maybe a, a couple where, where there's like this really old man who's fabulously wealthy, just like a really, really old multimillionaire, billionaire type of guy who's dating or, or married to a young, young supermodel, like less than half his age. And, and, and of course, the, the woman says, oh, well, I mean, I just love him. I love, I love being with him. I want to be with him. And naturally, some of us are a little skeptical we're like, really? She really love him. She's just in it for the money. It's all about the money, right? And when we say that, that's, actually, that's like a double accusation. It actually it calls the, the woman's character into question. It's kind of saying, 
look, she, there's no depth to her. It, it's sa- shallow, superficial. She's greedy. She's just, you know, loving for the money. That, that's all she's about. That's a, that's a jab at her character. But it's also kind of an accusation of the old man. It's as if to say, apart from his money, there's nothing lovable about him. You take the money away, there's no reason left why anyone in their right mind would want to, want to be with this guy. So it's, it's a shot at the old man, too. Now, in real-life situations, sometimes this is true. In this case, though, it's just a nasty accusation. It's as if Satan says to the Lord, Lord, now, I ain't saying Job's a gold digger. <laughs> but he ain't messing with no broke God. Right? That's a song reference, but, but the accusation is this. Look, look, Lord, Job only loves you for the money. He's in it for the stuff. He's not just being righteous for righteousness sake. He's being righteous because you reward him for it. He's in it because you're giving him stuff. It's, a, it's an accusation that Job's faith is the kind that can be bought. That he needs to be, you know, coerced into loving and serving and following God. That's all there is. But you take away the the stuff, take away the transactions, it'll all fall apart. And it's an accusation against God. That, look, really, God, you you have to bribe people to win their devotion and to win their affection. You you give out this stuff, just feed the meter of people's faith. But look, you take this stuff away, there's nothing left. Job will not love you if you stop giving him all the things in his life. That's, that's tough. It's a nasty accusation. Like, God, there's nothing about you in and of yourself that's worth loving apart from the, your stuff. But God says, all right, let's see. Let's see what happens. And we will see as we go on in the study. We're going to watch Job lose everything. All this good stuff, the, the secondary, you know, comforts of life, the, the wealth, the health, the security, the family. I mean, all the, all the good temporal things that Job's got, that God has given him, he's going to lose it all. And we will see. Is there anything left? Is there still a faith that Job has that can withstand that? Is Job's faith built on something more solid? Is Job's conviction of God's goodness coming from a deeper place than just the stuff that he's been given? And is there anything left about God once the health is gone and the wealth is gone and the security is gone and the relational intimacy is gone? Is there anything left still about God that is worth pursuing, worth believing, worth loving, worth devoting ourselves to? And we're going to consider Job as we look at his life and see what happens. And, and this all, whole thing raises two really profound questions, two profound questions that will go through the book of Job and his life, but two profound questions that every believer in Jesus is going to have to face, has faced, or will face somewhere along the journey. And here they are, two profound questions that I think are at the heart of this passage. One, even when God's good gifts go away, is God still good? Even when God's good gifts go away, is God still good? Is there something just intrinsic to who God is that, is that is just good, apart from the stuff? Could we still be without almost anything but God and that still be good? 
The second question pointed more towards us. Do we love God for God's good gifts? Or do we love God because God is good? These are profound questions for the Christian life. If you haven't faced them yet, they're coming. And we're going to watch them play out in Job's life. Because these aren't just philosophical, academic, theoretical questions. These get played out in real lives in real time. And they're going to get played out in Job's life, and they'll get played out in our lives as well. And the place they really get played out is in times of suffering, in times of pain, and in times of loss. It really shows us what our answer to these questions are. Why have we been loving God? On what basis? And and what is good about God? Is it just the, the things in the here and now that we experience of him, or is there something deeper than that? Because, you know, the, what makes Satan's accusation so tricky is that there is a certain logic to it. He's like, you know, it, it really is easy to love God and believe God is good when things are going well. It's really easy to believe in the goodness of God when life is good. But it's when life is not good, does not feel good, it's not giving us the things we want that these questions really come up. And these questions are, are at the heart of this passage. So ultimately, this, this passage of the, the wager between Satan and God, this is not really a passage to address the origin of suffering. It's not like if you're going through suffering or pain or loss right now, it's because there's some supernatural wager being, being played out over your life. But it's really, these questions are coming to the fore. What is the basis for our, our love of God and our belief in his goodness? And can we still trust him even when there's evidence in our face to the, to the contrary When we suffer and when we experience loss and hurt and pain, we see what our faith has been based on until this point. And we also can see, though, what's so good about God at a deeper level than maybe we've ever been able to see it before. Because we can't point to this, that, or the other thing as evidence that God is good. We've got to find it somewhere else. Pastor Tom said last week that when tragedy strikes, often... Who we are before tragedy comes has a large part in shaping how we respond to it in the moment and also how we come out of it in the end. And where there's a a deeper faith, a deeper trust and love of God and devotion to God for who he is and not just for the stuff he gives, we're much more likely to to thrive and, and make it and to experience God's goodness through tragedy and to make it out on the other side, and to not fall apart. Satan's accusation here is that Job's faith is is just going to fall apart in the face of loss. And God begs to differ. It does not have to be that way. And there's a danger. A lot of appeals are made in this culture and and what we export of our culture that, that we ought to put our trust and ought to put our faith in God because we'll be blessed in all these tangible ways in the here and now. There are prosperity theologians or a health and wealth gospel you might have heard of before that kind of promise things in the here and now. 
You should love God. You should put your faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Oh, because he's got a, a life for you, man. You're going to find your destiny. You're going you're, you're to find the dream calling, the dream job, the dream career, the dream mate, the dream finances. There are ministries out there being built up on the finances of people who've given in faith that it's going to produce a financial windfall for them now. Like, just give sacrificially to our ministry so that you'll experience God's financial abundance in return. I just want to say, we do encourage our church body to give sacrificially to God's purposes in the world. And I hope you know that if you give sacrificially to God's purposes in the world, it probably means you're going to end up with less. Because that's what sacrificial means. But we believe that it's worth having less because something else is of a greater value to invest our resources in. So a lot of appeals are made to base our loyalty and allegiance and devotion to God and to Jesus Christ on the stuff he can give us now. And, and what's tricky about it, though, is God does give us a lot of stuff now. He does. God blesses his people in great ways. I want you to know that if you're considering faith in Jesus, God does bless our lives in a lot of great ways. I've experienced incredible gifts from God along the way walking with Jesus. I've experienced financial provision in the midst of sacrificial giving. I've experienced miraculous answers to prayer. I have encountered real physical healings as a result of prayer. I have experienced incredible intimacy with God in worship and in, and in prayer. I've experienced uh, the, the joy of obeying Jesus and serving Jesus and, and loving other people in ways that, that pay off, in ways that are really rewarding. Also, I've experienced profound, I've walked with Jesus long enough now that I have also experienced profound disappointment in the midst of my walk with him. I've experienced the deep pain of seeming unanswered prayer, cried out from a deep place in my heart day after day for months, for years at a time, and, and being met with seeming silence on the other end. I've experienced not only great spiritual highs in, in, in worship and in, in seeing God's word come alive to me, I've experienced spiritual dry seasons dry spells in my walk where I'm just, just not feeling God in ways that maybe I was used to. Maybe, I mean, do some of you know what I'm talking about? Maybe this make, okay, this makes sense? All right. Because that's part of the deal sometimes. And we need a faith that can stand through that because it's, it's real. There are times when you know, praise God, the depression gets lifted, and there are other times when the depression is chronic. There are times when the healing is miraculous and instant, and there are times when the healing, we just have to believe, is on the other side. There are times when our service and obedience to Jesus and loving others pays off and is really rewarding and fruitful, and then there are times when we pour ourselves out for others in ways that lead to deep heartbreak and disappointment. And there are times when our obeying Jesus and, and following him, taking him at his word, has some pretty great immediate payoffs. And there are other times when our obedience to Jesus actually makes life harder 
than it was before. That's part of the deal. I was at a a conference last week where I heard a testimony from a Christian brother from Syria who knew a man who was part of a a small Christian village in Syria that was overtaken by ISIS, overrun, and and all the Christians were, were rounded up and held in captive, held in prison. Under the pressure that, oh, if they would just renounce Jesus and they would just renounce their faith, then they'd be set free. Well, they all refused to do that. They continued to worship Jesus. They continued to pray to Jesus. They continued to cry out to Jesus in the midst of this. And many of them experienced a miraculous deliverance. All of a sudden, set free in a a miraculous way, found their freedom. But not all of them. Some of them, that was the end of their life there in that prison. And their faith wasn't any different from from one another. And they would all say, really, that Jesus was worth obeying and worth worshiping in that time. Some of them experienced an incredible, miraculous deliverance in the here and now. And some of them are going to experience a miraculous deliverance in the hereafter. We need a faith that can stand through all this because, you know, sometimes our faith can move mountains, but we need a faith that can stand even when the mountains don't move. Even when the mountains don't move, even when the prayers seemingly go unanswered, even when the illness gets worse and declines, even when we are experiencing deep and profound loneliness and dryness in our Christian walk. It's easy to believe God is good when when everything's good. And God does a lot of good things, and they're awesome, and we should celebrate them. But I, I think even more compelling to me is a faith that can still stand even when nothing is awesome. A God who can still be found and whose goodness can still be tasted even in the midst of tremendous loss, tremendous heartbreak, and tremendous disappointment. And a faith that can still believe and still trust that God's got a future for us and and believe that this is not the end of the story and believe in the goodness of God even when what's right in front of us shouts to the contrary. And that's the kind of faith that is at stake here in this conversation between the Lord and Satan. And it's at stake many, many hundreds of years later in our own lives. Satan makes the case that Job doesn't have that kind of faith. That when things go bad and and he experiences loss, that it's all going to fall apart. That his faith is, is not based on anything deeper than that. And that God's goodness will not be found in that place of loss. But again, God begs to differ. We're calling this series Unshakable because we're believing that something, there will be something on the other side. There will be some way to experience God's goodness no matter what the circumstances of life and that our love for God will grow and not be based on just the stuff he gives but on who he is. We want that faith for our community to be able to stand even when it seems like Satan's got all the momentum when it looks like he's winning, to know that that is not the end game. And we want to believe and look for God in the places where it's not immediately obvious to find him. And if we can find him there, then all the good stuff, all the times of of good feelings and, and financial provision and good health and good relationships, that's all icing on the cake. 
But God calls us to a, an unshakable faith deeper than that. Satan says, no, you won't find it in Job. God says, oh, I bet you will. And remember, this is not a contest between equals. God's right. Let me pray. Lord. And Lord, you are right. Don't want to give the story away, but I pray as we, as we consider Job and we see what lies on the other side of loss, that we would find you there, not just in the story, but in our lives. And I know, God, there are some of us here who are wrestling with these questions in a deep way right now. God, can't, where, why are we following you? Are you good in spite of what I see around me? Can I believe that? Can I trust that? And, and God, we bring that before you. We bring you our questions and we bring you our doubts. And, and we pray, Lord, that you would build into us a faith from a deeper place and a belief in, a, in your goodness from a deeper place than we've ever known it before and we've ever expressed it before. Thank you, Lord, for the story of Job. Thank you that there's more to you than just your stuff in the here and now, but, but you are good, like we sang. Teach us to know that. Even use our roughest of circumstances to teach us that you are good. We declare that together this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.